Hello, and welcome back to the Cuse Conversations podcast. I'm John Boccasino, Senior Internal Communications Specialist at Syracuse University. When I look at DEIA work or diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility, it's really important that I'm on a campus that is deeply committed um, to anti-racism work, which I have seen a lot already happen, that um, is inclusive and participatory in its leadership, which we saw evidenced um, in the DEIA uh, draft strategic plan. Um, that really cares deeply about the process as well as the people involved in enacting change. And so the ability uh, for me to um, come in and um, to work with an already strong established team and to also report to a chancellor who has shown this commitment was very exciting for me. Um, And the opportunity, when the opportunity presented itself, I could not pass it up. Our guest today on the CUSE Conversations podcast is Mary Grace Amandres, who beginning on June 1st, take over as Syracuse University's new Vice President for Diversity and Inclusion. Almandres has spent the last 25 years working in leadership roles in higher education, including at Brown University, the University of San Francisco, McDaniel College, and most recently, the University of Rhode Island. We are thrilled that Mary Grace is joining the university leadership, and we are pleased to introduce her to the campus community on today's episode of the CUSE Conversations podcast. Mary Grace, Welcome to Syracuse University. Thank you, John. I'm just as thrilled to be joining the community. Tell us about your background in diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility leadership. I actually, before I get into sort of what my background is, I need to lead you to um, the first time I even imagined I would be doing this work. And that's the first day of new student orientation at the University of San Diego. That first night, we had a surprise event on the agenda. It turned out to be a huge square dance in the middle of the law school parking lot. And I draw your attention to that moment specifically because I was was raised in San Diego, it's very diverse, but at that square dance, I felt the most alone, isolated, confused, even fearful that I made a mistake by choosing the University of San Diego. And that's because I didn't see any diversity among the sea of 1000 people. And just as I was turning around to go back to my room, I happened to see across the law school parking lot, a small group of individuals with dark hair and dark skin. And I wove my my way through the crowd of 1000 students and I found my way to them. And they turned out to be other students of color who were also student leaders at the United Front Multicultural Center at the university. They introduced me to that center It allowed me to meet a diversity of different people from a variety of backgrounds. I became a student leader in that center and I would not be the VP for diversity inclusion today were it not for that event. It fundamentally changed my life. And I realized that I did not want students to ever feel that isolation, that fear, that confusion. And I wanted to take an active role in making sure that campuses across the country were welcoming, were inclusive, were able to uh, provide environments where students and their families and communities can thrive. Um, and so that, that's you know, one of the main reasons why I actually chose to do this work. And since then, as an undergraduate and throughout my professional career, I've done different aspects of DEIA work, um, including being a Dean of Students, overseeing a multicultural center, 
Um, also working on campus climate assessment. So the breadth and depth of my portfolio is really due in large part because I wanted to make sure I was doing work in different parts of the campus that would have the broadest reach. In addition to students, how can I also work closely with my colleagues, work closely with alumni and with community leaders who can make this environment inclusive and accessible for all? What exactly when we're talking about diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility, what does DEIA mean to you? It includes the um, full participation of all members of our community. It creates opportunities to thrive and to be successful in their respective roles. It is a feeling of belonging, a feeling that I can contribute to the greater good of the community and that my contributions will be valued. It's looking at issues of fairness, um, and of equity. Um, it allows for um, all members of the community, again, to participate in ways that are meaningful for them. Um, it creates opportunities for, you know, as, as I did as an undergraduate student, actually reclaim some parts of my identity, explore, express different parts of my identity, including my gender identity, for example. And so when I look at DEIA work or diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility, I'm really thinking about how can all of our community members in their respective roles um, create meaningful experiences for themselves to be successful in their role? So they don't have to hide parts of who they are, that they can come in as their full selves uh, to contribute and be successful without fear of any kind of harm, psychological, emotional, even physical harm, but that they can be all of who they are and be successful in the community. When it came to Syracuse University and your talents, why was this a good match? Why was Syracuse a place you wanted to take your talents to next? Mm -hmm. So uh, first of all, I don't, um, the other piece is that Syracuse has a really strong reputation around DEIA. And in particular, what makes Syracuse special um, is around accessibility and also its reputation of being a um, destination for veterans. As a child of a veteran, I benefited greatly from those benefits. And so I understood what it meant to be able to go to college and have my, you know, my father was a disabled vet. And so I was able to take um, summer courses at the public university uh, for free. My undergraduate was at a private, but I was able to go to college for free. And, and actually, in fact, there was a point where my brother, my father, and I were all undergraduates at the same time. And that was due in large part of my father's veterans benefit. Right. So when I look at the breadth of DEIA, um, it's really important that I'm on a campus that is deeply committed um, to anti-racism work, which I have seen a lot already happen, that um, is inclusive and participatory in its leadership, which we saw evidenced um, in the DEIA uh, draft strategic plan. Um, that really cares deeply about the process as well as the people involved in enacting change. And so work, the ability uh, for me to um, come in and um, to work with a, an already strong established team and to also report to a chancellor who has shown this commitment was very exciting for me. Um, and the opportunity, when the opportunity presented itself, I could not pass it up. Leading up to your first day on the job, what are some of the initiatives you've seen from the university that demonstrate its commitment to being an institution that is welcoming to all? So a couple of examples I'd like to highlight. Uh, first was the establishment of 119 Euclid. Um, and I know that uh, with the leadership of Dr. Alford, that was something of, of particular uh, significance. 
I know having been a director of a similar kind of center, the importance of those spaces, not only to be physically together with others who might share a similar identity, uh, but places of empowerment, uh, places of support, places to rejuvenate and to be um, surrounded by uh, people who care deeply about your success and your thriving on campus. So that was certainly something that was very attractive to me. Um, the other piece I would say is, um, you know, interestingly, when I came for one of my visits, I noticed on the quad that there were two flags I don't typically see on college campuses. And one I believe was the Iroquois uh, flag and another was um, trans the transgender flag. I remember um, pausing and, and taking a photograph and sending it to my colleagues and friends to say, I am going to work at a university where these flags are actually waving on the quad that I've never seen that happen in, in all of my years working in DEIA. That was very, very impressive. Um, the other piece I wanna highlight is I know on my search committee, there was a board of trustees member who um, is deeply committed to this work and was a representative uh, of the board on the search committee having him serve on the search committee, but also seeing that the Board of Trustees is engaged in these conversations, is really invested in the success of this office and this position, um, again, was of significance because that's not always the case. And while um, a lot of times we might say that we espouse these values, if we don't have the resources allocated to do that, then we really set up those um, vice presidents up for failure. And I found that Syracuse is really poised um, for greatness to be both a national and international leader around these topics. And I really am excited to work with the team to do that. We are so excited to have you joining our university campus beginning on June 1st. And I'm so happy that you talked about the brilliant resource that is 119 Euclid. It's welcome and open to all. It's such a hub of cultural activity. The food that's cooked in there is phenomenal. Uh, the music, the cultural experiences. Do yourself a favor if you're listening to this podcast, 119 Euclid, check it out. It's a fantastic resource for our students of all backgrounds, of all ethnicities. It's really a welcoming space for all. And it's one of several outstanding resources that you're going to get to work with in your new role. I want to offer you a chance to talk about uh, two of them in particular, the Intercultural Collective and Multicultural Affairs, which have been staples on this college campus. What do you look forward to most about working with those two entities? Mm -hmm. Th that's actually where I've come from as well. Um, I used to be a director of um, multicultural centers, and I used to be someone who oversaw a similar, a similar grouping as the collective. Um, and so for me, um, the, it's, it's actually easier for me to blur those lines uh, between administration and student experience, for example, uh, because at the end, we really are student-centered. And so the most important thing is that um, students also don't need to know where these divisions lie, um, because at the end of the day, what they need to do is have the support, uh, holistic support network uh, for them, again, to be successful. I, I'm, I'm really excited about drawing from the collective wisdom of my colleagues who are in those areas. They come with an incredible wealth of knowledge um, and experiences. And um, if you were to take the number of years of experience that we've had there, um, you will have over a century. Um, and I like seeing um, the ways in which the collective in particular is modeling a very holistic approach to DEIA. Um, the fact that we also have a disability cultural center, again, 
phenomenal, um, innovative, very different. That's not something that you always see. And so to be able to work with colleagues who come with that wealth of experience and knowledge is very exciting to me. And I look forward to working with them. You've already been to our campus, you know, several times before actually taking over in this role. Why was it important for you to get to know our campus and who have you been meeting with so far uh, during your visits? And what have you learned about the university during those in-person gatherings? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wanted to be, I, I know that the campus is excited and anxious um, for the new vice president to hit the ground running. Uh, that there has been a lot of work done previously, whether it's the campus climate assessment or the various reports or the draft strategic plan that I'd referenced earlier. And I I wanted to make sure that uh, when I start on June 1, I wasn't coming in um, completely unknowledgeable of some of the foundational um, and important kind of initiatives to get started on. So in in my previous visits and in my current visit, um, I've been able to talk to the chancellor, um, his chief of staff. I'm also meeting with the provost and several colleagues across campus who do this work on a regular basis and are um, available and collaborate with the vice president, um, both to get a sense of the broader picture um, as well as to uh, be mindful of what the priorities and our initi- and initiatives are moving forward. And, and, you know, we talked about 119 Euclid and the um, Intercultural Collective. I also made it a point my first visit to tour those two spaces um, because I wanted, first of all, to know where they were, uh, but secondly, to get a feel. You know, I was able to come here in April um, and get a feel of what those spaces are like during the academic year and to see the energy and the buzz and the students in those spaces. For me, I live for those moments um, because I knew what it was like, again, as I, as I said earlier, to, to feel isolated and lonely, um, but to be able to have those spaces on campus. I know the importance of those spaces for retention, um, even for recruitment and for engagement. Um, and, and also um, just to be in community, again, the feeling of belonging and inclusion. And so it was really critical in my first visit that I go to those two spaces specifically, because those are the communities I also serve. Those are the communities I come from. And I wanted to make sure that from the very beginning, uh, those communities knew that I was here with and for them. If you can look into your crystal ball, what do you think are going to be the most important priorities right away over the short term? And then what are some more long-term priorities that you can't wait to tackle? Mm -hmm. Some of the immediate, after reading some of the documents and looking through uh, my notes and and obviously my conversations with community members, uh, I think building community um, is gonna be really critical. Getting people from across campus to not only be together, uh, but to start collaborating um, and communicating. I know that there's so much good work being done across campus. uh, And I think that we have this real opportunity to now collaborate and streamline some of those efforts so that we are best leveraging our resources to serve our community. The other piece is to make sure we get on implementing the DEIA uh, draft strategic plan. Um, It's really important that we follow through with the commitments and the recommendations that our community members have identified um, and to look at some of the recommendations that previous consultants have also offered. Uh, We really need to make sure we get moving on some long and short-term priorities for that. I think communication is gonna be really key Uh, We need to make sure we're amplifying the good work happening across campus, but also what's happening within the Office of Diversity and Inclusion. And so I've been talking to my team about making sure that we have newsletters that go out on a regular basis, 
And the last thing that I would say that's both short and long-term is making sure we have the right organizational structure within the Office of Diversity and Inclusion. We have this real opportunity to identify what the needs are of the community, put the right people in place to ensure that we're making progress in these areas. There's nothing more frustrating than having committees have these conversations, produce excellent reports, and then nothing happens but collecting dust. And we don't want that. We really want to be, again, a national, international leader around DEIA. And so in order to, the, to do that, we need to make sure we have the right people in the right places to make that happen. You strike me as an extreme go-getter, uh, a doer, someone who can't wait to hit the ground running with this new position here. I want to reflect a little bit on your past experiences, including your most recent stop as Associate Vice President for Community, Equity, and Diversity, and also Chief Diversity Officer at the University of Rhode Island. What do you think are some of the valuable takeaways from that and your past work experiences that will really benefit our campus community with your starting here on June 1st? You know, and this is... um... Also a nod to what I was just sharing a little bit earlier. You know, I can't stress enough the importance of community building. It's really important to provide opportunities for members of our community from different constituencies, from different colleges and schools to come together, to strategize, to rejuvenate, to be together, just to build a sense of belonging on campus. That is so fundamental. And what we learned from research is that even if a campus does not have a critical mass, Um, If people feel a sense of belonging and that they can thrive, they will stay at that university. And that includes students, faculty, and staff. So let's create an environment, or rather, let's continue to enhance and expand the efforts that have been made, whether they're through affinity groups or student organizations. But how can we bring people together so that they know that there are others like them across campus, but that there are also allies who want to work in solidarity with them, right? So I think the community building is really key. Um, The other piece is how do we be respectful of legacy and history while also being innovative? So how we do DEIA work will will, will have the foundations of the work that has already happened prior to my arrival, but it will look different moving forward because I am different and the students who are coming in and the new faculty and staff who are coming in are also going to have different ideas. And so how can we build on the legacy while also being innovative, I think is is another piece. And the third is um, making sure our policies, our procedures, our practices are inclusive. You know, I come from a tradition that um, allows for multiple voices to be at the table And um, if we don't all fit at the table, let's get a new table. And so um, my leadership style is one that really draws from um, expertise and wisdom from all parts of the university. And I think that's going to be really critical as we move forward. And um, the last piece I would say is let's do it. Let's do the work. Um, Again, we need to make sure that we're doing right by all of those individuals who contributed to the draft strategic plan, but also all the students who had demanded changes, all the alumni who are looking back and saying, why is it still like this? Let's make it different for them. Let's make it different for the future generations. Let's make it different for us as community members who are here now. I think it's refreshing to hear your attitude, your energy. I can tell right away, you can't wait to hit the ground, not just walking, but running uh, on June 1st. And I love your analogy of getting a bigger table. If we don't fit at the table, let's make the table as large as we can to, again, make this as welcoming as for everyone on the university campus. 
I want to pivot to something you brought up that I was not aware of when it comes to DEIA, and it's the veteran piece, the veterans component. We have prided ourselves, and Chancellor Severed has done such a great job in making Syracuse University the number one place for veterans. Is this a new part of the DEIA movement? Yeah, and what makes it interesting is that veterans is actually a very diverse group of individuals. Um, When you look at age, when you look at abilities, when you look at race and ethnicity, um, and certainly Syracuse is definitely a leader in this area. And typically we don't, you know, in, in these kinds of spaces, veterans and even individuals with disabilities don't always get um, included in the conversations and in those movements. And yet at Syracuse, that is the, that is fundamental. It's part of our breath in terms of how we are and how we talk and how we act at Syracuse. And so certainly Syri- um, Syracuse is a leader around veterans issues. Um, and I, as I mentioned earlier, disability as well. And I also want to um, undergird that with the fact that we are also racialized individuals, that all these individuals also come with different races and ethnic backgrounds. And it's important for us to also recognize that race is also a critical component as we think about um, these different um, minoritized groups. Um, If you look at it through a very intersectional lens where we understand how race and ethnicity also play a role in our gender identity, in our class identity, in, a vet, in our veteran status, disability, for example, sexual orientation, gender um, expression. And so, you know, I, I, I want to um, highlight definitely the leadership of veterans um, that Syracuse has. And I also want to make sure that we don't um, look at these groups um, through a very monocultural way, but we have a more intersectional way in which we talk about these issues and these groups. I want to now go and give you an opportunity to enlighten us into your background. And is there a piece of advice? Is there words of wisdom that you were told that somewhere along the way resonated to the point where Mary Grace now every day carries that bit of advice with her? What's the best piece of advice you've ever received? So um, you you can't see it now because my office isn't set up. However, (laughs) uh, in my office, I hang a painting that my brother got for me from the Philippines. I am Filipina and I'm very proud of that identity. And in that painting, it depicts the value of Bayanihan. And Bayanihan refers to a community coming together for the greater good. And how that's expressed in the painting is you will see a group of individuals who are carrying on bamboo poles on top of their shoulders, a hut, a hut made of um, native materials. And Bayanihan refers to a practice typically in rural villages where the townspeople would come together and help their neighbor move their house, move their hut from one part of the village to another. Everyone from the community who is able-bodied would be able to, you know, would help in that endeavor. And at the end, the family would host a fiesta, would host a dinner, a meal for everyone, regardless of whether they helped or not. That spirit of coming together, that spirit of social responsibility for the greater good, the spirit of taking care of one another, I hold deeply and, and I and I try to in every day um, espouse those ideals because that was the value that I was raised with as a Filipina immigrant. Um, that is the value that my parents, my extended family, my siblings, um, every day they embodied that. And, and while it was never vocalized in terms of a piece of advice 
or a motto or, um, you know, a proverb or anything like that. It was part of who we were as a community and as a family. And so I, I bring that painting everywhere I go because it reminds me of the values I hold of treating um, people with respect, seeing the dignity, coming together for the greater good, not expecting anything in return. Um, that's the kind of value that I bring to this work and I think has been really um, important uh, to highlight so that you all understand sort of why I do the work that I do, that, that social justice for me is fundamentally about love, love of the other individual, seeing the other as self. And so by a Nikon and love for me go hand in hand with social justice. And I'm so glad you brought up your cultural identity at the Syracuse University campus. We are so proud of our cultural heritage celebrations. And we celebrated Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month in April because all of the students and all of the faculty and staff we're on campus. I know nationally it's celebrated during May. You're going to be starting in June. So we're kind of in that overlap period. But could you elaborate just a little bit more for us what exactly your Filipina heritage means to you? How strongly that identity is a part of exactly who you are? Um, actually, my dissertation was on Asian Pacific Islander women in leadership, um, both because um, I saw the ways in which leadership had a very gendered and racialized um, um, idea and in the ways in which we express it or expect leadership to look like. But I would see people like my mother, for example, who wasn't a CEO, uh, she didn't have a leadership title, uh, but she would run this household when my father was away uh, for many months uh, while he was deployed elsewhere. Um, and she exemplified leadership but we don't talk about leadership in that way. And so when I think about the ways in which my ethnic heritage has played a background, I feel it's a responsibility for me to amplify those voices that are often concealed and to dispel myths. You know, what's interesting is I actually talk about um, the fact that um, many times when people see me, they read me as this ambiguously brown woman. And because my last name is Almandres, it's Spanish, there are assumptions that I'm Latina. And so I really try to make sure at the very beginning, and I'm very proud to be Filipina. So I try to put up in the very beginning um, in some ways to express my Filipinaness, whether it's having a Filipino American flag or wearing jewelry that's made in the Philippines or alluding to some of my cultural values, uh, because I think we don't amplify those voices enough in this country. And again, because I'm ambiguously brown, people don't know how to read me. And so um, I, I just want to make sure um, that when, wherever I go, um, I'm representing uh, my Filipina American identity, my immigrant identity, and certainly not only as a woman of color, um, but someone who has um, experienced different experiences uh, due to other identities that I hold as well. I love the fact that we are so established in celebrating those cultures here on the university's campus, and I can't wait to see what you are able to bring to our campus community uh, in your new role. We, we've spent a lot of time talking professionally. I do want to shift a little bit, give our audience some idea. What does Mary Grace like to do for fun? What are some of your hobbies? <laughs> one of my, you know, it's interesting. The chancellor asked me the same thing. And uh, one of my loves is actually dancing. And that's actually, actually how my husband and I met salsa dancing. And so um, I love salsa dancing. I love to travel. 
I love um, to cook and to eat equally. <laughs> uh, <but those laughs> you are, can't have one without the right, other. Exactly. I love to eating. cook because I love to eat. Right. So that's the, <laughs> that's the short, that, that, that's the, that's the, that's what it is. Um, I also like being outdoors. So um, a lot of people have given me recommendations of what to do in the area. And I'm really excited to see, um, you know, central New York, uh, the Finger Lakes region, um, especially during the summer, winter might be different. I'll be doing different things in the winter, <laughs> um, but <laughs> I would say dancing. Um, and that's very uh, Filipino as well. Like if we don't sing, we dance or we play a musical instrument, but the arts is really embedded in our culture. Um, and dancing has been a really critical part of my life um, for, for a lot of my life. We are so pleased to welcome you to the campus. It's been so great to get to know you and tell your story here on the podcast. She is Mary Grace Amandrez. She'll be starting on June 1st. Thank you so much for making the time and welcome to the Orange community. Thank you. Thanks for checking out the latest installment of the Cuse Conversations podcast. My name is John Boccasino signing off for the Cuse Conversations podcast.